0: It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small-town clinics, big-city health systems, and healthcare care professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday, and Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck
1: Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We continue our coverage of the inpatient prospective payment system proposed rule. We have two reports. Angela Phillips reports on its impact on the inpatient rehabilitation facility providers. And REC Monitor legislative analyst Emily Evans reports on the Trump administration's influence on rulemaking. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. J. Paul Spencer checks in with a Medicare Advantage report and asks the question, what's the advantage? And Monitor Monday's senior correspondent, Nancy Beckler, returns with the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now
0: making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. First
2: of all, some of you may have noted that the Office of the Inspector General has added an interesting issue to their work plan. They're going to audit CMS's collection of overpayments. As a basis for this, the OIG cites their 2012 report where they found that CMS had only collected $84 million of the $415 million the OIG themselves found as overpayments and told CMS to recoup. When one of our listeners saw this update to the work plan, they were not surprised. As the RAC coordinator at their hospital, this person tells me they have several RAC denials that they did not dispute in 2013 to 2014, where they received an overpayment letter, but the money has still not been recouped, um, as it was with all of their other rack denials. Now, while they're happy not to have the money recouped, finance people never like to have an open entry after four years. And they have no idea if there's a statute of limitations since they were notified there's an overpayment. They just keep waiting. Now perhaps this is something that David Glazer can address at some point for us. Next up, last week was the American College of Physician Advisors National Physician Advisor Conference down in lovely Greenville, South Carolina. I got a few updates for you. First, the tactics used by commercial payers to avoid paying claims was a recurrent topic. If you think your facility is being singled out, you're wrong. No one is immune. We also heard repeatedly that the payers are blatantly misusing the commercial screening tools. These tools do not allow observation to go on for days on end. Unfortunately, no one had an easy solution besides pushing back on them. And if you're right, don't stop pushing. We also heard from the chief medical officer from Keypro who, along with Levanta, is auditing the short-stay inpatient admissions. He told us they are now on round four of the probe and educate process. And while they continue to audit the top 175 hospitals in each region, they have yet to refer a single hospital to the RACs for poor performance. And on their monthly calls with CMS, he says CMS never even mentions referring any hospital to the RAC. That doesn't mean you should let your guard down. There are many auditors even scarier than the racks, like the OIG, who we all know loves extrapolation. He also stated the current overall de- claim denial rate is about 10%, compared to 27% when they first started the process. He was also very upfront that there was a steep learning curve for his own reviewers, and they made mistakes, but they are getting better. And most importantly, he did briefly discuss total knee replacement. And I was jumping for joy when he stated the keeper would support the use of the case-by-case exception for one midnight stays if the documentation supported that the patient was at higher risk of surgery. But remember, the key is to get it documented and be specific to indicate why they are at higher risk, not just that they are at higher risk. That was huge
1: to me. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of our One Position Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, M.D. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. (music) Now with the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday's senior correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy.
3: Good morning, Chuck. I'm returning from a week last week in Washington, D.C. for the National Association of Rehabilitation Agencies annual meeting. And for the first time in 20 years, we were not calling on Congress to beg them to stop the therapy cap because that was already done uh, earlier this year. But at the meeting, um, I was pleased to chair a work group and panel discussion with Tanya Kussain, a senior attorney with the Office of Inspector General, to speak about some of the therapy cases in the SNF, the Part A world. So that was was a great experience. We also had a couple sessions on CMS targeted probe and educate. And like Dr. Hirsch reported, there's some mixed reviews out there. But I want to give a more detailed update today on TRICARE and the use of physical therapist assistance and occupational therapy assistance. As I've reported previously, the National Defense Authorization Act empowered the Department of Defense to write regulations regarding the use of assistance uh, for serving TRICARE beneficiaries. And the update on that particular process is we hope that by the end of 2018, the notice of proposed rule is done by TRICARE or the Department of Defense. And when we move into that, we need to go through a process of response to that from the Department of Defense, the Office of Personnel Management, and the Office of Management and Budget. So our best hope is by the end of the year, we'll at least have the notice of proposed rule. And hopefully in the next year or two, we will be able to have assistance work with TRICARE enrollee, and beneficiaries. So now we'll bring up our poll. My good friend Angie Phillips on the Earth side of things. I wanted to give some context to our listener audience here this morning and their interest because we're going to hear some great updates on IRFs today. We have the following facilities in our healthcare system. Check number one if you have an IRF, an inpatient rehab facility. Check number two if you have a long-term acute care hospital or an LTAC. And if you have both an ERF and an LTAC in your system, check that. If it's not applicable, that's okay. So we'll be hearing a little bit more about this later in the program. We look forward to Angie's presentation. Thanks, Chuck.
1: Thank you, Nancy. That was Monitor Monday senior correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley & Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from David Glazer, Jay Paul Spencer, Angela Phillips, and Emily Evans reporting from Washington. This is Monday, it's May 7th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Are you looking for a better way to handle audits? Do you want to
0: know how you can prevail in your appeals? Fortunately, there's an exclusive RAC Monitor webcast that will provide you and your team with useful legal arguments for responding to overpayment allegations. You will also learn how to streamline your appeal process and how to best approach audits by private insurance companies, an approach that differs from dealing with Medicare audits. Finally, you'll learn how common mistakes in your refund letters can inadvertently increase your liability. Join us for the timely webcast, Learn Legal Secrets for Combating Denials and Winning Appeals. This exclusive Rack Monitor webcast features health care attorney David Glazer. It's Thursday, May 16th at 1:30 p.m. Eastern. To attend, click on the register button in the handout section of today's program or visit the Rack University web store.
1: We're back and coming up later in the broadcast, J. Paul Spencer reports on Medicare Advantage organizations. Also, Emily Evans reports from Washington on the Trump influence on rulemaking, on the inpatient prospective payment system proposed rule. And Angela Phillips reports our lead story this morning on the impact of the inpatient prospective payment system proposed rule on inpatient rehabilitation facility providers. Now let's check in with health care attorney David Glazer, who is reporting on some risky business. This morning, David, what's risky? Good morning, Chuck. So as a preview
4: of what I'll be talking about in the webinar uh, Clark just mentioned about denials and appeals, I'd like to talk about two clients who recently had significant denial issues. In the first, a hospital was told by Neridian that whenever a patient leaves against medical advice, that admission should be treated as a transfer. Um, The client knew that this contradicted guidance in the claims processing manual that indicates patients who leave against medical advice are treated as transfers only when admitted to another hospital on the day of discharge. The client did exactly the right thing, contacting both the MAC and the regional office. That story has a happy ending, as it seems that Medicare had experienced some sort of claim processing hiccup resulting in the incorrect denials. Reaching out to the regional office may have sped the resolution, and it's a great option. The second situation involves an oncology practice. Their high-priced drug claims are being rejected when they bill under the name of the supervising physician. The contractor is stating that the medical records have no indication of involvement by this physician. In essence, Dr. Treat is seeing the patient, but the bill is going in under the name of Dr. Supervise, who's in the office when the drug is administered. When reviewing the records, the MAC doesn't see Dr. Supervise mentioned. A consultant who works with the group suggested what she believes to be an easy solution, bill in the name of Dr. Treat. While that advice might get the claim paid, it's not smart. 42 CFR 410.26, the Incident 2 regulation, makes it quite clear that claims should be in the name of the physician who supervises the service, in this case, Dr. Supervise, and not Dr. Treat. The good news is that if the client follows this consultant's misguided advice, We can argue the situation is only a reassignment problem and not an overpayment, but this consultant doesn't know her Medicare regulations. Let this be a reminder not to blindly trust advice from lawyers or consultants. This particular consultant is the same one who wrongly insisted that medical decision making controls the level of service. She's wrong a lot. We'll be reaching out to the regional office to help this um, Medicare contractor understand the regulation and apply it correctly. Um, And let me apologize if there are any listeners on speakerphone who just heard me say treat multiple times, and they've got a dog nearby. So, finally, I'd like to comment about Dr. Hirsch's situation. As I understand it, this organization received an overpayment demand, a formal overpayment demand from the MAC, and then opted not to appeal. If I'm understanding that correctly, then I think there's a reasonable argument that under the 60-day rule, they should refund the money. However, I want to distinguish that situation from another common situation. If a ZPIC or other contractor notifies you that they believe you've been overpaid, but that notice is not a formal overpayment notice, and it indicates you'll hear from the contractor and you disagree with that conclusion, you have no duty to voluntarily refund the money if the MAC fails to follow through on the ZPIC's recommendation. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. So Chuck... I hope people will sign up for the May 16th webinar. And since we're talking about denials and appeals, I'll show my age and leave with B.J. Thomas's, Hey, won't you play another somebody's done somebody wrong song? Both of my clients were done wrong by the contractor and one by a consultant. But fortunately, everything worked out in the end.
0: Won't you play another somebody done somebody
1: wrong song? And make me feel that home. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Frederickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. <laughs> Here now, with the latest news on Medicare Advantage organizations, is Monitor Bundy
5: national correspondent Jay Paul Spencer. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Jeff, and good morning, everyone. Well, I'd like to start with a little bit of a personal anecdote. Uh, part of the reason why I am involved in the administrative side of health care or health care at all is the fact that I had five doctors in my family. One of those doctors was my Uncle Ed, uh, who ushered me into the world of medical care, being my pediatrician when he was a child, when I was a child, rather. Uh, Uh, In 1992, my uncle led after a distinguished career as a pediatrician, passed away. And at the time, I was... and the employee of an insurance company, and being the dutiful nephew and the person who was uh, uh, in his nascent uh, steps as a compliance professional, wrote to my insurance company and said, uh, It's a good idea to terminate this uh, physician as of this date in 1992, as he has passed away. Imagine my uh, horror and somewhat amusement uh, a year later when I found that my uncle had been resurrected uh, by a PPO reprise in my insurance company's provider directory. Well, perhaps the inaccuracies of provider directories at insurance companies, particularly Medicare Advantage uh, directories, are not as blatant as my resurrected Uncle Ed, but a recent survey that was conducted on behalf of the AMA and CMS indicates that more than half of physicians, uh, roughly 52%, has a have a patient who encounters coverage issues at least once a month because of inaccurate payer directories. Now, this is something that CMS has tried to look at from a regulatory uh, perspective, and have stated that uh, they are uh, putting forward regulations to ensure physician directory accuracy. Uh, part of the problem that they're having with putting forward these regulations is that there are substantial variances between states with regard to the rules for providing an accurate provider directory. So the information is fairly innocuous on the On the surface, we have things such as a physician's practice address, the telephone number, whether the physician is in or out of network, which is particularly uh, problematic if the patient is attempting to schedule an appointment under a Medicare Advantage plan, or whether the physician is accepting new patients. it did the survey did encourage that physicians need to take more ownership of the process. Uh, what that ownership entails would be interesting as most of the physicians state that when they are asked for up, asked for updates, what they tend to do is they fill out a form that has been uh, pre-filled by that particular insurance carrier and they tend to send it back to that carrier via a fax. Uh, but, uh, and that uh, accounts for about 70% of physicians who answer the survey who provide information du- uh, directory updates to payers. So, uh, while we are mostly an audit program, it's probably fairly important to look at the uh, physician directory at least once in a while if you're on the physician side and uh, while it may not be egregious as raising uh, someone's uncle from the dead it is certainly uh, going to be important to your patient population to make certain that your directory information is correct and up to date with all of your major payers and with that i'll throw it back to chuck
1: thanks paul very much that was j paul spencer paul is a senior healthcare consultant with doctors management thanks again paul we continue our coverage of the Inpatient Prospective Payment System Proposed Rule. We have two reports. Angela Pils reports on its impact on inpatient facility providers. And Emily Evans reports on the Trump administration's influence on rulemaking. We begin with Angie Phillips. Good morning, Angie. So what do IRF providers need to know about the proposed rule?
6: Good morning, Chuck, and to our listeners as well. I think our listeners are going to welcome some of the components of the proposed rule that's actually going to have some pretty significant impact on our data collection requirements for inpatient rehab facilities over the next two fiscal years. So the proposed rule was released for public inspection on April 27th, and it's expected to be published in the Federal Register tomorrow. There are three areas of this rule I'd like to talk about this morning. First, the easy part. The updates to the payment rates for fiscal year 2019 have no surprises. Consistent with prior rules, we get updates to the CMG payment rates, including adjustments to relative weights length of stay, wage index, and labor-related share, which results in an overall uh, estimated increase in payments to ERS of about 0.9%, which is very similar to the 1% we got last year. So under the proposed rule, the standard payment conversion rate will increase from $15,383, I'm sorry, $838 to $16,020. Second, the proposed rule, and I think this is important, includes a request for information from stakeholders related to recommendations for sharing of healthcare information between providers, the use of non-physician providers to assist the rehab physician in the IRF setting, and the use of remote access for completing all or parts of the required physician face-to-face visits. And this is an issue that could impact rural areas where rehabilitation physician coverage is difficult to arrange. Comments on the proposed rule and the request for information are due June 26th. Finally, the provisions that have the greatest impact related to reducing paperwork and regulatory burden are split into provisions across two fiscal years, fiscal year 2019 and fiscal year 2020. So for 2019 beginning October 1st of this year, the proposed rule would allow the post-admission physician evaluation to count as one of the required three face-to-face visits for the rehab physician. This would allow a bit more flexibility for the physician to Determine the level of patient supervision required during week one. It also allows the physician to conduct the team meeting remotely without any additional documentation requirements. The change here is to remove the documentation requirements. It removes the ERF specific admission orders from the ERF regulations, but it does not truly remove the requirement for an admission order. It just takes away the duplicate regulation, which is elsewhere in the rules. And finally, it removes two quality indicators, one related to MRSA and another related to patient influenza vaccine, from our required data elements. The most noteworthy provision of the rule, however, follows in fiscal year 2020, when beginning on October 1, 2019, the rule would remove the FIM from the ERFPI documentation requirements. While we've expected this move, since the GG functional components were implemented into the quality indicator requirements, and with the continued Medicare work toward a unified payment system for post-acute services, we now have an implementation date. The proposed rule includes a detailed description of how the CMGs will be calculated under the revised system. Placement in a CMG will be similar to what is currently used as a methodology and will include four factors that are currently measured in the quality indicators. Motor function as calculated from the GG functional scores, memory function as calculated in the BIMs, a communication score from hearing, speech, and vision items, and age. This proposed change will significantly reduce the workload because of the duplicate systems we're carrying now in the area of data collection, but it will require the organization to make some significant changes in current documentation templates and work processes to make that shift. We'll be watching for any changes in the proposed rules and report them back to you, our audience. And once again, we encourage you to respond to those requests for information topics by June 26th. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Angie, very much. That was Angela Phillips. Angie is the president and CEO for Image and Associates. Angie is considered one of the nation's foremost authorities on inpatient rehabilitation facility providers. And you can read Angie's reporting on this subject on our homepage, IraqMonitor.com. continue with our reporting on the 2019 inpatient prospective payment system proposed rule, and for context, here is RAC Monitor legislative analyst Emily Evans with her perspective on what she sees as Trump's administration's influence on rulemaking.
7: There's going to be a lot. So the this is the this season of rulemaking is the first uh, where the Trump administration has had their. Hand on the levers the entire time. So the president was elected in, uh, and sworn in in January of of 2017. Um, a lot of the work had been done by the Obama administration on the rules that were ultimately released in the spring of 2017. They had some influence, and and you saw it in a in a couple of uh, areas. But but for the most part, a lot of that stuff was was baked. Well. This year, the Trump administration has been at the task the entire time, uh, and so these rules are all them. Now, add to that power, uh, which is considerable, the fact that there really isn't a congressional will to mess with health care and do too many um, bold new things after their experience with the the ACA repeal, Uh, that, that leaves really the action as far as change goes with, with the Trump administration. So so what are what are the themes that are weaving their way through all the rules, not just the IPPS rule? Well, the first is definitely a reduction of regulatory burden. That is something that Seema Verma um, has made uh, a point of talking about every chance she gets, and it takes a number of forms. As Angie pointed out, the, the documentation changes um, are a first and easy win in that respect you know getting removing documentation requirements that are that are du- duplicative or or not particularly effective or helpful um, and they're I think responding to uh, comments that they're getting from the industry uh, the other um, uh, the other area of, of concentration is with respect to uh, reporting of quality quality uh, Quality metrics, trying to trying to move away from the process metrics more to the outcome um, measures, and and try to make those as effective as possible. Uh, they, they even renamed the program "meaningful measures," um, so that it, the things that are being measured are are things that actually measure something. Um, and then finally, the the the, the burden on uh, IT uh, meaningful use, trying to eliminate as much of of the requirements there uh, as as they can. Uh, and it, it's not entirely um, all good news uh, for hospitals. Transparency is going to be a, uh, a theme as well throughout uh, throughout this rulemaking. You in the IPPS rule. They're asking for comment on internet posting, machine readable internet posting of prices, um, and that that I expect the industry to really push back on. But we're going to see this this continue to pop up as a theme: is that people need to know what it actually costs uh, to go go through the hospital. Um, so, so in and I know it's not popular to say nice things about the Trump administration. The truth of the matter is, is these are things that are being submitted and these are the, and you're getting a reaction to it. And, and what I hear from uh, leaders of health systems and, and public companies and so forth is actually we kind of like the Trump administration when it comes to the administration of, of Medicare and Medicaid. So, um so that's uh, i guess not always a popular thing to say but um but that's that's exactly what's going on um so more to come as the rules um roll out we still have the calendar year rules for um the outpatient which i expect to be where most of the policy making action is uh here in june and uh so it should be an exciting summer um and that's all i got back to you chuck
1: Thanks, Emily, very much. That was Rack Monitor Legislative Analyst Emily Evans. Emily is the Managing Director of Health Policy for Washington-based Hedgehog. Thanks again, Emily. Uh, Nancy, let's take a look at the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey.
3: All righty. And maybe I'll just, like David Glazer said, I'll tell my age, too. I started an inpatient rehab when there was probably only about 50 facilities around the country coming out of the old polio epidemic. But let's take a look at our listeners here this morning, 45% of our listeners in their um, integrated health system or hospital have an ERF, an inpatient rehabilitation facility. 1% of our listeners have an LTAC, a long-term acute care hospital. 17% of our listeners this morning have both an ERF and an LTAC. So, And our survey this morning was brought to us by our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors. So back to you, Chuck.
1: Hey, thanks, Nancy. By the way, everybody, you can listen to us on demand. It's free. You can listen to us anytime, anywhere. You can listen to us on Spotify, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday. We want to thank you for being with us today, and special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard, Emily Evans, David Glazer, Dr. Ron Hirsch. Angie Phillips and Jay Paul Spencer. We thank you for being with us, and we look forward to your returning next Monday for another edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.